0: God, I pray that you would use your word to shape us to be your people. You would help us to know who you are and what you have called us to. We thank you for taking us um, out of the, the darkness, the, which is the reality of what we were born in, and bring us instead into the light of knowing you truly and having the, the great privilege of being called uh, your children as we are connected to your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want us to think a little bit about uh, the difference that uh, reputation makes. As I was thinking about that uh, this past week, um, my wife's first car came to mind. This became the, the, the car, our first car as a married couple. It was a Honda Civic. And what's uh, surprising to me about this is that when people found out that we had a Civic, uh, we would hear a con- consistent phrase again and again. People would always tell us, oh, those things run forever. I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And then we had it for a while. When it rolled over 200,000 miles, we started hearing another phrase. Oh, 200,000 miles is just getting started. I think that's, a, that's the reputation that, that this car has built up. And whether you agree with that or not, what a Honda Civic is known for is to be a car that has an ability to put a whole bunch of uh, miles on it. And that actually worked out pretty well in our favor when it came time to sell the car because it meant that it had a pretty high resale value and then it was a pretty sought-after kind of a car. So we were able to sell it after putting 100,000 miles on it. Uh, we were able to sell it for not that much less than what we had paid for it. But, but it got me thinking, like, so what are other things known for? I want you to help me out a little bit here. I'm going to throw a couple things out, and you're going to tell me uh, what comes to mind or, or what the reputation or what, what these different things are known for. And I want you to try to keep it positive for the most part here so we're going to be kind. So uh, let's start off with a nice easy one. Uh, uh, Canadians. What are Canadians known for? Yeah? Okay. Donuts and hockey. That's good. I like that. Okay. There's some Canadians here. You want to stick up for your country? No? Okay. Quiet then, apparently. Um, what about Disney World? What is Disney World known for? There you go. <laughs> m-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Okay, They've actually done studies. I heard this from someone who, who went through one of the trainings at Disney. That they, they know that if they can get someone to Disney World one time the average person is going to spend $70,000 at Disney World if they can get them there once over the course of their lifetime. So what they're known for then is hospitality, right? It's being the greatest place on earth, the happiest place on earth. Okay, uh, I'm going to put my, my own state on the line here. What about Alaska? What, what is Alaska known for? Gold. Gold. That's beautiful. These better all be positive things. I can't hear them, but I will. <laughs> Mountains, there you go. How about your state, Michigan? What's Michigan known for? Cold winters. <laughs> Lakes. Good. 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 I think it's interesting to think through, what's the, what's the reputation of uh, different things like that? What, what are these things known for? And this is where we have to start and, and think a little bit more seriously now, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but I want you to think through this. What are followers of Jesus known for? What's our reputation? Does that matter? Does it matter how we are viewed by those who are outside the church, for example? Does it matter how we're viewed by those who are inside the church? This is what we're looking at today. What is the church known for? What are followers of Jesus known for? Uh, we're in a, a short uh, series right now in the book of Titus called A Church Called to Make a Difference. And today we're really looking at what a Christian lifestyle looks like and why that matters. This is a, a little letter that's written by an, an older church leader uh, named Paul to a younger church leader named Titus to help him strengthen the churches on the, uh, the island of Crete and to be able to build them up to make an impact on that island for Christ. The text that we're looking at today is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So Titus is a little book. If you don't know where that is, you can grab a pew Bible. It's found on page 1181, Titus chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. So we're going to read the text first, and then we're going to uh, look at it together. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, Speaking to Titus, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self controlled and pure to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. there are two important principles that we have to understand as we look at this text here. We're going to look at them in turn. The first principle is that right teaching leads to right living. The text that we just read is full of a bunch of different characteristics and directives to Titus and to these individual groups within the church. So it's it's tempting to just jump right in and take a look at those. We're going to do that, but first we have to understand them in context and really give uh, adequate weight to that first verse there. What is this about? This is about you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. So all the categories and the characteristics that flow out of this come from that. They all fit into the category of what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That means that Paul is really continuing a theme that we started to see last week, that that right teaching leads to right living. So when we think about what followers of Jesus should be known for, what our, our reputation should be, it has to be rooted first in right doctrine. Now, I realize that for some of you, doctrine isn't a word that gets you excited. You don't hear doctrine and start you know, being really, really uh, you know, animated. This is the thing that I want to talk about. But really, right doctrine is the foundation and the root of what it means to be a Christian. It's the difference between the truth and lies, really. Right doctrine is the, the foundation of, of who we are. It's, it's knowing God rightly. There is a, a holy, good God who created us, who loves us, and, and who has rescued us from what Paul calls elsewhere the empty way of life. It was handed down to us. That's the starting point for every one of us. Truth should make a difference in our lives. Knowing who God really is and and what he has done for us should have an impact. We should live different uh, because of that knowledge and in light of that. So, for example, one of the characteristics that comes up repeatedly in this passage is self-control. What do you think about self-control? Is that the kind of thing that you like, that you grab onto and say, yes, that's good? Well, it's not natural to us. At least it's not natural in my household. Have you ever seen a toddler exercise self-control? It doesn't happen in my house. Maybe it does in yours, but you must have different kids than me then. Self-control is not a natural characteristic of humans. You know what it is? Self-indulgence. That's a natural characteristic of humans. I want that candy. I'm going to get that candy, even if it means I've got to grab it out of the hands of a brother or sister or a kid down the street. We are naturally selfish people whose inclination is towards self-indulgence. I want that. I deserve it. I'm going to get it. But the gospel tells us that we're actually not very good self-masters. This is actually very destructive for us. Not only do we end up going against what God requires of us, but we go against what is best for us. If you give a toddler free reign to do what he wants to do, his chances of survival are going to be microscopic, right? What we learn in the gospel is that we have a father who knows us, who loves us, and who directs us to the right way to live for what is best for us and in obedience to him. So we learn then self-control, to give up our selfish self-indulgence for something that is so much greater and so much better not only for us, but also for the glory of God. So you see that right teaching, or what Paul calls here sound doctrine, leads to right living. And this is what we have to remember as we go through this passage and look at the different directives that are given to titus here this is about living out the gospel it's about understanding the truth of who god is and what he has done for us and then to live in light of that the truth is our lives should look different after we put our trust in jesus something has happened to us we know something that is true now and that should have a real difference in our lives now, when i was 14 years old I took the uh, uh, test for my learner's permit for a driver's license, and I was so excited, but I failed the test. And I didn't fail it because I got too many questions wrong on the written portion of that. I was fine on that. I failed it because I failed the vision test that accompanied it. And I had no idea that my vision was bad, but I failed it. And actually, more accurately, I failed it the first time around, but I was, I was sitting there, and my dad was talking to the guy administering the test. They allowed me one more chance, and as I, I squinted, and, and the tears of frustration were kind of acting like little lenses, and I was able to finally get the last little line that I needed, so I was able to actually pass the test in the end. But it showed us, obviously, that I needed to have corrective lenses. So we went to the eye doctor, and I got my first pair of glasses. And I remember the amazing difference that that made. I didn't remember ever thinking that I had bad eyesight. Things never seemed blurry to me. That's just how things were. But then I put these glasses on and suddenly... I'm seeing, I remember being in the backseat of our van as we were driving home, and I realized that the, the road underneath us wasn't just a uniform shade of gray that was kind of, you know, blurry and going past as we drove. You can actually see the different colors in the road as you go down the street. I'd never had that experience before. Or looking up at the moon at, the, at night a few uh, days later and realizing, wait, you can see craters on the moon from here without a telescope. It's, it's not just a, a uniform color up there, you can actually see the differentiation, it's amazing. Now, I always wear contacts and glasses now, always, because why on earth would I want to go back to seeing the whole world in a a blurry mess? My world looks totally different now that my eyes have corrective lenses. I never want to go back to that. It's made a difference, and why would I ever go back in that direction? See, after we come to understand who God is and what God has called us to, our lives should look different. Why would we ever want to go back to the, the way of living that we had before? We, we know something that is true and something that is so much better now. So our lives should reflect that. Our lives should look different. So how should they look? Let's look at the instructions that Paul gives. Older men first. He breaks it into different categories. Older men first in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Older men go first because they're called to set the, really the tone for the church. And this is the standard that they're, they're setting. They're, they're supposed to be leading the way and demonstrating the kind of life that flows from the gospel. So old guys, pay attention. This is you. You are called to something greater. This raises the bar for you. You have an opportunity to really set the tone for the church. See, whether you know it or not, there are people who are watching you to find out what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you might look at some of these young punks with their tattoos and their beards and think that that you're not actually having an impact on him, but I'll tell you this, they are watching you. Day in and day out, they are watching you. I have talked to them. They look up to you and they want to be able to follow your lead, to know what does it mean to be a faithful husband? What does it mean to be a godly father? So you have a responsibility to take up that mantle of leadership. Show us what it means to live as a Christian man. Show us godly character. Show us what it means to live a life of self-control, a life of loving God more than anything else in all the world. Show us what it means to serve others. Show us what it means to have a heart for those who are right now outside of a relationship with Christ. Show us what it means to live that out day in and day out. The church needs you. You've got to show us what it means to live out the gospel and then get involved in the lives of others so that we see it lived out in the real world before us. You have opportunities to reach down to the next generation. And we've got a couple of formal things here. You can do it through small groups. You could do it through some of the uh, groups of three, the discipleship groups we have. Or you can do it as something as simple and informal as having someone over for dinner. Have them over to your house. Let them see what your household looks like on a normal day. Or go take someone out to lunch or breakfast. Go have coffee with them and talk out what, what does the Christian life look like. But we need older men to be reaching down and setting the standard really for this is what a godly life looks like. Older women are called to a similar role. Look at verse three. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. In other words, older women are called to throw off the, the worst stereotypes of older women, that they are busybodies, gossips, and winos, and instead they're supposed to live out the gospel. Am I not allowed allowed to say winos? Come on. (laughs) That's what it says in here, right? Don't be addicted to much wine. Throw off those stereotypes and instead to reflect the good of the gospel. And you get a task, too. Look at the next verses, verses 4 and 5. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, subject to their husbands. So you have not only a responsibility to live out the gospel in your life and, and have demonstrate a, a, um, a godly life for yourself, but also for the next generation. You're called to teach them what it looks like here. Now, if you fit into this category and you have to self-select here. I'm not going to call anyone an old lady, but if you fit into this category of an older woman in the church, I'm not offending anyone, right? If you fit into this category of being an older woman in the church, you are called to live your life in an intentional kind of a way. And Paul calls us out on one of the worst stereotypes of older women in the church, that they are gossips. And he says that cannot be in the church. So older women of Trinity, that uh, that stereotype ends with your generation right now. You're not going to fall for that trap of just talking about people incessantly. You're going to instead build positive relationships. Say, no, this is what it means to have godly character as a woman of faith. This is what it means to live out the gospel right here where I am. There is a younger generation who needs you involved in their lives. And don't ever underestimate the influence that you have. The church needs you the church needs you to show and set a standard for it. this is what it means to live out the Christian faith as a woman in our culture today. So don't just talk about stuff. Get involved in people's lives. Build those relationships. Reach down to the next generation. Again, you can get involved in, in small groups and Bible studies and discipleship groups, or you can just have someone over at your house and get to know them. And again, show what it means to live as a Christian. Younger women, your instructions come right in the middle here. Verse 4, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now you'll notice that most of these instructions uh, involve the home life of younger women, which makes sense because that would have been the typical role that that most of the younger women in this culture would have had. And Paul is showing them how the gospel is lived out in their context, in their, their normal sphere of life. And as he's doing that, he's elevating their roles. What they do at home matters. How they treat their husband and their kids matters. It should be a reflection of the gospel. So younger women, there is a significance to what you do. Whether you are a mom with a bunch of young kids at home or whether you are a single young woman, what you do matters and you get to live out the gospel in every context that you find yourself in. Take your cue from the generation ahead of you. Watch them. See what it means to live out the Christian life. And you too get to reflect a life of godly character. Younger men. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. He knows that that's a really important point for us. But Titus himself appears to be a younger man, so he gives Titus instructions too, verses 7 and 8. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Younger men, Paul is calling us out on one issue in particular, self-control. Here's what that means. You and I don't just get to live for our own desires and what we want anymore. I am not my own master. I have a master, and it is Christ. I am not the king at my home. Jesus is, and I'm going to do everything I can to live in obedience to him. See, the stereotype of our generation is that we're just a bunch of big kids stuck in extended adolescence, just playing around uh, like a bunch of teenagers in grown men's bodies. Listen, that is not us. That stereotype is not Christian men. We will live with integrity, we will live with self-control, we will live in a way that shows that we have a different master. Something has happened to us and we don't live for ourselves any longer. That stereotype just doesn't fit. We watch the older men of faith and we see what it means to live out a life of godly character day in and day out and we take up that mantle and we do it. Sometimes I get emotional. We're going to get to the last group addressed here, verses 9 and 10, in a moment. But for now, what I want you to see is that we are called to a higher standard of living. And this is all of us. We have to see that this is every group within the church. This isn't just pastors. This isn't just leaders or elders. This is everyone in the church. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. This is everyone seeing. this is what we are called to. The gospel has made a difference in our lives. If we have put our trust in Jesus, it means that God's own spirit is supernaturally at work in us to give us new life. That right teaching of the gospel then comes and plays out in our lives so that we live a different kind of life. And think about the kind of church that we would look like if these things were true of us. Wouldn't that be an amazing community to be a part of? And I know that we're always imperfect people, but this is the road that we are striving for. It's everyone living out the gospel, everyone working for the good of everyone. It's a whole community living out godly character day in and day out. This is what we're striving for together. We want to be a church like that, a church that lives out the gospel. The gospel takes root in us. It shapes us. It starts changing us from our heart, from the inside, and that plays out in a different kind of a life. That's where it starts with. It starts with understanding the gospel, understanding the message of Christ, and asking the Spirit to continue to bear the actual fruit of that in our lives so that we live different lives. And then it takes each one of us looking at how we live and saying, yes, I am going to live in obedience to Jesus every day. I am going to be, live a life of character that God has called me to. Here's what we see. Your life matters. How you live really matters. We want to be a church that's known as a community where character is paramount, where we are people of integrity who follow Jesus no matter what it costs us, no matter how unpopular that is at the time. That's what we want to be known for. That's the reputation that we want to have. Now, of course, we can't control the stereotypes that people have about the church, but what we can control is making sure that the worst of those stereotypes don't apply to us. So that when those are thrown our way, they just ring hollow because that's not who we are. We are people of godly character. We are people who live lives who are shaped for the gospel. Now let's see why that's so important. The first principle we see is that right teaching leads to right living. And now we see that right living makes the gospel attractive. So let's look at that last group addressed in verses 9 and 10. He says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And this might come as a little bit of a surprise to you. It might be a little off-putting. Our nation's history of slavery makes this a difficult kind of a passage for us. We would ask, why would Paul tell slaves to be submissive? Why not tell them to seek out their freedom? Slavery is unjust. Well, that's true. But slaves in the state didn't have much opportunity to get out of slavery. They weren't able to change their position in life. And so as they come to faith, what they need to know is, what does it mean to live as a Christian when I'm a slave? So what should they do? Paul gives them very similar instructions. It's about living a life of character. It's essentially saying, be the best slave you can be. Be subject to your mastery in everything. Try to please them. Don't talk back to them. Don't steal from them. Show that you can be fully trusted. In other words, they're to show the same godly character that every other group in the church is, but played out in that particular context. Again, we could ask why. I mean, why not just tell them to do the bare minimum here? And they're living under a system that's, that's not just. Why, why not just say, do what you can to get by? My wife read a, a biography of George Washington a few years, years ago. Uh, you might know that George Washington was a slave owner, but uh, he was apparently not particularly insightful when it came to the nature of People to human nature and and how slavery uh, affects people. So he was really surprised to see how little work his uh, particular slaves were getting done. And so he decided to go watch them one day and see what was taking them so long in these different tasks. So uh, the day he watched them, he saw they were incredibly productive. They got like 10 times as much stuff done on that day as he was watching them throughout the day as they had on other days. And he thought, well, what's happening here? I don't understand it. And then the next day, they went back to their normal production, like 10% of when he was there to watch them. And he was dumbfounded. Like, Why on earth are they so productive on this particular day when I happen to be there? And why are they so unproductive on those days that I just happen to not be there? Is something different in the weather? Is there something different in the equipment? I don't think I have to tell you why they were getting less done, right? They were being watched. It's not that hard to figure out. Why would Christian slaves be any different than that? Verse 10 So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So, even in the position of being a slave, even in this unjust system, a Christian is able to live out the gospel in a way that makes it attractive. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's the motivation, that's the intended result that comes from godly living, from right living. It's to make the gospel commendable, to adorn the gospel, make it attractive. And if you look back at this passage, you'll see in a a couple different points that same result, uh, that same intended result is shown up there. So look at verse 5 the instructions to young women. What's the reason there? So that no one will malign the word of God. In words, this message of Christ has, is impacted by how you live your life. Again, when he talks about his instructions to Titus and the integrity in his teaching, he needs to show why. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. The way we live has an impact on how people think about God. That's a sobering thought, but it's a very important thought. The way we live can make the gospel attractive and commendable. You think about it. It's not natural to a slave to do everything he can to please his master, to never talk back, to never steal, or never do any of these things. What's natural is to do the opposite, right? To do the bare minimum, to maybe if you get a chance to, to take something for yourself, to do that, to have a little bit of insolence maybe because you're in a bad situation. That's what's natural to us as humans if we're in a position of slavery. But Paul is calling them to live in a way that demands a gospel explanation. So if someone watches their life, they think, well, why on earth would you do that? Why are you going out of your way to to please your master? Why are you always living with integrity? Well, it's because I know that in Christ I am free. I have a master, and it's not this earthly master. My my true master is God himself, and he has called me to a life of self-control and honesty, to be hard-working. I'm a child of God. In other words, I'm living in a way that demands a gospel explanation. The, The gospel is the only answer for why someone would live like that. This is why it's so important for us as Christians and us as the church to live out the gospel. Right teaching leads to right living, and right living makes the gospel attractive. See, think about the opposite of this. If we are known as uh, hypocritical cheats who live selfish lives for our own gain, the, the kind of people that you'd never want to enter into a business agreement with or something like that, what does that do to the name of Christ? It drags it down with us. It drags the name of Christ through the mud. But the positive side of that is also true. When we live out the gospel, our very lives are making the gospel attractive. We're giving people a reason then to consider the, the claims of Jesus. The way we live matters. What we're known for matters. Over the past year, we've talked about our ones, the, the one person that God has put on, on my heart and your heart who needs Jesus, who's not, yet, not right now a follower of Jesus the way that you and I live has an impact on how your one views Jesus. The starting point for that person might be to think, well, those are just a bunch of st- stuck-up, self-important, hypocritical, judgmental people who don't care about anyone else and have totally out of touch with the world. But you live different than that. You're living out a gospel life. And so when they see your life, they might want to have those throw those claims at the church, but then, but then they have to stop and admit, well, yeah, I think that about the church, but there's this one guy, and, and he's a Christian, and well, that's not true of him. He lives different than that. If the gospel is shaping your life, then your, then your life is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. It has an impact on how people think about Jesus. Here's the reality. If you are a Christian, you already are a testimony to Jesus. Your life is telling people about Jesus one way or the other. The hard question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is my life teaching people about Jesus? Does my life, the way I live, give people another reason to reject Christ? Or does the way I live give people a reason to consider the truth of the message? Now you have to stay with me here. If your life is not a reflection of the gospel, if this is a very convicting thing, don't move to despair. This passage does call us to a higher standard of living. It it sets the tone for what the church should be and and how our lives really should have an impact on the people around us. They should be able to look at us and see, well, yes, there is a good God. Yes, maybe there is something to this story about Jesus. They should be able to do that. But the reality is, is that every single one of us is deeply flawed and deeply imperfect. So there is grace here. The gospel isn't that that we are suddenly perfect people, that God has gathered all the really good people together in the church. It's the opposite of that, isn't it? The gospel is that we are such miserable sinners who are totally hopeless apart from him that he did the only thing that would ever give us any hope. He sent his own son to live a perfect, righteous life for us, to die on a cross, to take away the penalty of our sin so that these miserable wretches like us can be declared righteous, forgiven, and we are now being made new. The gospel isn't that we are perfect people, but it is making an impact on our lives. So don't despair if you're you're seeing this, if you're listening to this and thinking, my life's not there right now. That's part of the process as well. Here's what we do. We live out a life of gospel integrity. So when we do make a mistake, and every one of us is going to make mistakes, we own up to it. We admit it. We say, I was wrong. I should not have done this. This is not what my life should look like. We confess that. We repent of that. We turn away from that. And we live in light of God's forgiveness and do everything we can to make it right. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means our life is shaped by the gospel. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're looking at how you live right now and you're looking at the standard of this passage and you're seeing that that your life right now doesn't reflect the gospel, you're not being a positive testimony to Christ right now, let me give you a suggestion. It's very simple. It's in line with this passage. Find a Christian that you know, that you respect, and go out and talk to them and ask them for help. How do I grow in this? How do I grow to live out the gospel in every way of life? What does it look like in my position to be a follower of Jesus? How do I live a life of integrity? And that's what, that's what the kind of relationship that this passage is talking about, right? Older women and younger women, older men, younger men. Now, if you're a more mature Christian and someone comes up to you after the service today or sometime this week and asks you for help, don't panic. Don't feel like there's no way. I've talked to plenty of uh, longtime Christians who feel like that. I, I don't have anything to offer. No, no. First of all, we can get you some resources and help you along the way. But, but understand this. If someone is coming to you and saying that, you know what that means? It means God's working in your life. It means there is something that God is doing in your heart. Whether or not you feel adequate to the task, you have something to offer because God's at work in your life. And you get a chance to serve another generation of Christians by just sharing what you've learned. A simple thing like that. Now maybe you are here, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Or maybe you're just not sure yet what to make of all this. I'm going to make a suggestion that might seem a little bit arrogant on the one side, and it might seem a little bit laughable on the other side. But if you're not yet a Christian, you want to know the difference the gospel makes. Watch us. Watch the church. Watch how Christians live, and say, well, is this real or not? Does this give me a reason to consider? That's a hard thing, right? And we have to be careful here because the the truth of the gospel doesn't rest on the ability of humans to be able to live out the gospel and live in line with the gospel, right? It's it's not that the church makes the gospel true. The gospel is objectively true. There really is a God who loves us, who sent his son to rescue us. That is true regardless of if anyone is ever living it out. That is always true. And also your faith can't rest on uh, the fact that there are people living out the gospel somewhere as well. Your faith has to rest on what God has done for you, this objective truth. But at the same time, this passage means that you should be able to look at the church, you should be able to look at the lives of Christians, and see if the gospel makes a difference or not. So watch us. As hard as it is to say that, as self-convicting as it is to say that, you should be able to watch us and see this is what it looks like, this is the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. And church, that is why it is so important for us to live godly lives. It's so important for us to live uh, lives of integrity, lives that demand a gospel explanation. We are called together to live out the gospel because there are people all around us who need Jesus. And you and I, by our very way of life, get to make the gospel attractive to them, get to commend the gospel to them and give them a reason to consider the truth of Jesus. Because the reality is that we are imperfect people And God is making us into a community. He's changing our lives. And we get to talk about that. We get to show that by the way we live. And of course, if that's ever going to happen, we desperately need God's Spirit to be at work in our lives. And we need God's help. So let's pray right now for that. God, I thank you for the incredible, daunting call that you have given over the life of the church. I thank you that that you have rescued us, you have redeemed us, and you are against all odds making us new, so that we, imperfect, miserable sinners that we are, are somehow by the power of your Spirit being made new. Our lives are starting to look different now. I pray that you'd continue that work in us in, in such a way that, that people would be able to see that this isn't something that we just do on our own. There is a power at work here that is beyond human ability, so that you will get all of the glory. We pray that you would make us a faithful and a holy people. That we would consistently show lives that reflect the gospel. God, we thank you for putting us in this community, in this city, in this county. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful to your call to reach out to our community, and to be a powerful testimony to your grace so that those who don't yet know Jesus can see the difference that is. And we trust that you will be at work in them to bring them to new life in your son, Jesus. This is our desire. This is our heart. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.